Hi, you're listening to Art Rant, my silly little art history podcast where I take you on the journey across art history. I'm your host Lana, a passionate art lover who knows way too many random absurd facts about art. Every episode we're going to depth discussing a particular artist or a painting or a whole art movement. The idea is that the next time you go into the art gallery, you're going to know a bit more about art pieces there, and maybe it will help you connect with them. For me, it works that way. When I know the story behind the canvas, it keeps me on my toes with fascination, looking for every detail in every brushstroke. Because art is not only about pretty pictures after all. There is so much more to it. There is certain aesthetic in art, and I'm going to try and show it. So, tag along if you want to widen your art history horizons and have some good nerdy time. Women in art has been a topic of quite a lot of discussion in the last few decades. There have been quite a few essays written on this topic and a lot of arguments fought. It's no secret that the question of equality between men and women has been an issue for lots of centuries now. We always hear about great male artists absolute geniuses, inventors and pioneers in their fields. And as far as this is true, at times, I don't think it's fair to forget that women also take up space in the art world and their achievements should also be recognized. Of course, there has been not so many great women artists as there have been male artists, but it is a problem of institutional repression and discrimination, unavailability of proper education and lack of encouragement. Oppressive institutions, not lack of talent, have prevented women from achieving the same level of recognition that men received in art and other fields. You can't measure greatness. It's a very abstract concept that we humans put on each other. However, if there would have been any measurement at all, I'd say that people who had to fight against a system and social norms to achieve the same kind of success as the others would achieve without putting so much effort in, I dare say these people deserve to be considered great. And all this introduction just to say that today we're talking about Artemisia Gentileschi, an absolute feminist icon, a great Baroque painter whose story makes you truly believe that women are incredibly strong and can achieve anything they put their mind to. It's a fascinating story about a woman who was tried to be broken by a man but in the end has flourished and had an astonishing career being the most famous female artist of the 7th century Italy. We're also going to touch on a subject of biblical and mythological stories in this episode, more particularly women taking revenge on men, so we gain a bit of insight into Gentileschi's paintings. So stick around if you want to know everything about that. Also, right from the start, I want to give a trigger warning, because this episode contains discussion of sexual assault, so just be aware of it. Okay, enough chit-chat. Let's finally begin with the story of one great woman. Artemisia Gentileschi was born in Rome in 1593 and died in Naples in 1656 at the age of 63 years old. She was an eldest child and a daughter of the Tuscan painter Razio Gentileschi. Primarily, 
raised by her father following the death of her mother in 1605, Artemisia showed much more enthusiasm and talent than her brothers did at her father's workshop, where she was first introduced to painting. By the age of 18, she was known for her extraordinary talent, with her father boosting about that. And that after only three years of practice, and like, wow, three years of practice, and she was already recognized, at least by, I mean, okay, by her father, that's obvious, but like a lot of other people too. And during this period, she took inspiration, obviously, from her father's painting style, which was heavily influenced by Caravaggio, since uh, he also knew him personally, her father. She was the only female follower of Caravaggio, by the way, and she had a very naturalistic approach to her subject matter. Her earliest surviving work, completed, and I cannot stress it enough, at the age of 17, is Suzanne and the Elders of 1610. An amazingly masterful painting. The story of Suzanne is a biblical one and was popular to paint during the Baroque period, so it's quite a useful thing to know. The story goes like this. Two elderly men spied on Suzanne while she was bathing. They demanded sexual favors from her, and when she refused, they started threatening to ruin her reputation. However, she held fast, still said no. They falsely accused her of adultery, which was punished by death at the time. But thankfully, her name was cleaned when the wise man named Daniel questioned them separately, and the details didn't match up. I think it's the book of Daniel, and that's why the Daniel was the wise man in this story. Usually, uh, Suzanne is exemplifying, like, she's an example of the virtues of modesty and fidelity. It was an opportunity for painters to practice the display of female nude, often for the pleasure of their male patrons. However, here, in Gentileschi's work, Suzanne sits uncomfortably, clearly showing distress. Her body is twisted and she turns away from the two men. Her pose is in no way erotic. We see that Artemisia portrays Suzanne more realistically, with more understanding of what such unwanted attention of man can make a woman feel. And the fact that she created this masterpiece when she was only 17 years old will just never stop astonishing me, but also never will stop making me sad, because 17-year-old, like, basically child, is not supposed to understand the feelings uh, of the woman with such a story. In 1611, her father uh, was working with Agostina Tassi, a fellow painter who was also hired to teach Artemisia. One day in May, when Tassi visited the Gentileschi household and went alone with Artemisia, he raped her. Artemisia thought that they would marry, but he reneged on this promise to her. And nine months after this happened, Arasio pressed charges against Tassi, also accusing him of stealing a painting of Judith from his home. And... Actually, the major issue of the trial was that Artemisia was a virgin before Tassi raped her. And if not for this fact, it wouldn't be possible to even press the charges. 
also turned out that Tassi engaged in adultery with his sister-in-law, planning to kill his wife. This guy is just, he was so bad. It's just, oh my God, such an assured. Uh, he was exiled from Rome only, but the sentence wasn't even carried out because the dude was friends with a Pope Paul V and just, you know, as always, you're friends with people in high places, so you're not getting punished for your deeds. And actually, during this trial, Artemisia was also tortured with thumb screwers for the purpose of verifying her testimony that she doesn't lie. This deeply perverted legal system is, is, is just disgusting to me. And it's such a traumatic event, at such a young age, could have easily broken any person's spirits spirits but but not on Artemisia she she held very fast and just as I said so she, she had an astonishing life and this traumatic event happened to her very early which definitely affected her in the future but I just want to emphasize on the fact that she didn't break and for me as a woman is a very uh, empowering moment in the biography of this amazing artist anyway one month after the trial, Razio arranged his daughter to marry a modest artist from Florence. Artemisia moved to Florence, and the six years she spent there were quite decisive for her career and family life. She became a successful court painter, enjoying the patronage of the House of Medici, one of the most important families in Italy at the time. She was the first woman to be accepted at the Academy of the Art and Drawing. This was more than an honor. This allowed her to buy supplies without a man's permission and sign contracts with patrons in her own name rather than her husband's or father's name, for example. This allowed her to widen her education and exposure to arts. It was a very big deal for a woman artist at this time. She maintained good relations with the most respected artist of her time and was at least acquainted with Galileo Galilei himself. In 1615, she received a commission from Michelangelo Buonarroti the Younger to be in the allegory of inclination for the sailing of the Casa Buonarroti, which was made to celebrate his noted uncle. It, it wasn't Michelangelo himself rather than his nephew. He just wanted to celebrate his talented uncle. At the time, Artemisia was actually in an advanced state of pregnancy, and in this instance, she was paid three times more than any other artist involved in the project. It is believed that the subject of the painting bears a resemblance to Artemisia, and indeed, in several of her paintings, energetic heroines appear to be self-portraits. We can see the resemblance with, for example, self-portrait as a lute painter. This was because it was cheaper and, well, more convenient, since, well, you know, no models were required to paint um, from yourself. And also it was a way to articulate her own identity as an artist. Ordering a model is expensive and you have to, you know, understand their schedule and how it all works and just, you know, understand the other person. But when you can use just yourself, just looking at the mirror and painting yourself, uh, even for not self-portrait paintings, it's easier. And actually lots and lots and lots of artists did it during the uh, last centuries. And it's a common practice. 
now let's talk about the story of Judith and Holofernes, since not only there are six variations of paintings on this subject by Gentileschi, but also it was quite a popular story to depict during Renaissance and Baroque periods. In the story, Judith, a beautiful widow, is able to enter the tent of Holofernes because of his desire for her. Holofernes was an Assyrian general who was about to destroy Judith's home, the city of Bethulia. Overcome with drink, he passes out and is decapitated by Judith and his stake is taken away in a basket often depicted as being carried by an elderly female servant. Actually, maiden is one of the signs which helps distinguish this story from the story of Salome and John the Baptist. Also very popular depiction in art at the time, and also very often a composition with a woman holding a head of a man. So, like, if you see a maiden, it's Judith Hanoferness. If no maiden, then that's Salome. It's just as easy as that. And I swear to God, the amount of like just paintings that you see in his like an art history museums was just a random woman holding a man's hand and being incredibly happy about that is hilarious. I love it. You just go into the art gallery and you expect, you know, to see some beautiful nudes and all of this, you know, classical arts and the, the, the I don't know, the still lives and stuff. And instead you just see women holding a decapitated hat and just being very happy about that. Love this. And like, it's, it's, a, it's in a Bible. All of these stories are taken from the Bible. And we think that Bible is very strict and sexist. No people. It's just actually quite empowering. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm kidding, obviously, but I just find this fact very funny. Anyway, um, this story is actually a symbol of triumph over tyranny, because of course. And the actual beheading was quite unusual to depict. Normally artists would depict um, Judith already holding a head of Holofernes, as I said. But here, at Gentileschi's painting of this scene, we see the action itself. Artemisia depict depicted herself as Judith and Tasse's Holofernes. A catharsis moment, so to say. This work is more dynamic than Caravaggio's on the same subject, and it's quite interesting to look at them side by side and how two different, but I dare say equally talented artists depicted the same subject, but so just in such different ways. One is a man and the other is a woman. Artemisia brings action into the foreground. The action is right in front of us. This Judith is not afraid of the task in hand. She firmly holds the head of Holofernes, slaying his throat and blood spilling everywhere. This maidservant also isn't an old, feeble woman who just waits to collect the head. She's a young woman as well who actively participates in action. They both have strong masculine arms, which Artemisia always gave to her women. Brutal realism, that's the style of this painting. From feminist viewpoint, we can say that these women are fighting together against the male oppression. It's the depiction of female solidarity with each other. The sword in this painting forms the central axis and all the limbs are pulling into the main action and again and again bringing our attention to the violent scene and making us see. We, viewers, are close-up witnesses to the act. Also, these biblical heroes in modern, to Artemisia's contemporary, closes give the story a current relevance, 
reminding us again of inequality between sexes and a violent battle between them. Because obviously, you know, Holofernes and Judith, uh, they probably didn't wear dresses of uh, 17th century Italy. Uh, actually, there are two paintings uh, on the same subject. Now, Medici, by the way, one of the Medici ordered the painting by Caravaggio, and it's also definitely worth the view. Now let's get back to our heroine. While in Florence, Artemisia had five children, four of whom unfortunately passed away, and only Prudencia or Palmaria, uh, the name isn't uh, known for sure, survived into adulthood which was, well, unfortunately, the reality of the time. The Middle Ages wasn't a fun time for children. Her only daughter also became a painter and was trained by her mother, although not much is known of her work. In 2011, uh, a collection of 36 letters was discovered, dating from about 1616 to 1620 that add a startling context to the personal and financial life of the Gentileschi family in Florence. They show that Artemisia had a passionate love affair with a wealthy Florentine nobleman named um, Francesco Maria Marinhi. I'm so sorry, I don't speak Italian. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing all of this wrong. Uh, and the father of Artemisia actually was well aware of their relationship. And he maintained a correspondence with the lover of his wife on the back of Artemisia's love letters. Love that. He tolerated it presumably because Marinhi was a powerful ally who provided the couple with financial support, which just proves once again that money rules everything. And I I just love this fact. It's It's so fun. It's like... Yeah, sure, darling, you can sleep with another man. Just let me quickly write him a letter that he should also pay to us. Truly, truly, what a polyamory triangle. Anyway, <laughs> however, um, by 1620, rumors of the affair had begun to spread into the Florentine core, and this, combined with ongoing legal and financial problems, led the couple to relocate to Rome. And actually, by the 1623, any mention of her husband disappeared from surviving documents. And it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Paperwork was messy at the time, and documents would just get lost constantly, you know, the amount of fires too. Anyway, uh, returning to Rome, Artemisia's career quickly took took off again. The money problem ceased since Rome offered a lot of opportunities to cooperate with other artists and seek patronage from the wide network of art collectors, which also meant a variety of styles. With her reputation growing sadly, she interacted a lot with a group of Flemish and Dutch artists. She mastered chiaroscuro, which is the style of painting with strong contrast between light and dark, and tenebrism, uh, tenebrism, I'm sorry, a way to depict scenes with very dramatic illumination. Often the background would be completely black, and modern viewers would see such style as cinematic because it offers a very dramatic look at the scene, and yeah, it was very popular during Baroque period. In 1613, she moved to Naples in search of more lucrative jobs, where she resided for the rest of her career. She continued to collaborate with other artists whom she taught her techniques. 
There she also started working on a painting in a cathedral for the first time. She adapted novelties of the period and abilities to handle different subjects. She was flexible in her work and wasn't afraid to try new things, which again just shows what a genius, but also an open-minded genius, she was. In 1638, Artemisia joined her father in London at the court of Charles of England, who invited her there. Orazio became a court painter by this time. Charles was actually a big-time art collector, and his collection included Artemisia's painting too, as he quite in, as he was quite intrigued by her abilities, including her self-portrait as allegory of painting, which I just recommend you like looking it up. It's so great. And by the way, this painting was actually the first one I saw by Artemisia, and it absolutely fascinated me. I it was just. It was very rare for a woman to have a job at the time, let alone be famous for this job. And this painting is just so great. We like it doesn't depict much, but I think it's first of all the complexity. Like she obviously painted herself, but the pose is quite. Uh, it's not an easy pose. She's holding a brush in one hand, painting something on a blank canvas, and in the other she holds a palette and other uh, brushes. And I don't know how she did it, but the, the masterful brushwork and the, the light effects also, they're amazing. And the fact that she was just like, you know, um, I don't care about what other people think, I'm just gonna depict me as a painter. And it was, it was very unconventional for the time. You should understand that it was a president that president that she was an artist and earned her living with that. It's just amazing. Anyway, it's, it's just great. It's a great painting. And I, I would absolutely love to see it in person. But yeah. Um, Arazio, her father, died suddenly in 1639. And by 1649, we know that Artemisia was back in Naples. And, well, last known years of her activity, she still had commissions and worked. A lot of patrons thought it fascinating to have a nude painting of a woman to be painted by a woman. Such an exotic thing. Wow. Artemisia probably died in the devastating plague that swept Naples in 1656, and this plague actually wiped out an entire generation of Neapolitanian artists. And, well, such was the end of the life of this absolutely extraordinary woman. Um, there, were, there are about 57 works by Artemisia Gentileschi, and 94% of them feature women as protagonists uh, or equals to men. And all these characters she depicted intentionally lack the stereotypical feminine traits, such as sensitivity, timidness, and weakness. And they're depicted as courageous, rebellious, and powerful personalities. Her rape became an axis of interpretation of the artist's work, which, to be honest, I'm not entirely comfortable with. Artemisia's work are often interpreted according to the contemporary issues and personal biases of the authors. And obviously, it's not my place here to say what you should interpret uh, the artist's work as or not. 
but I just don't think that that's the sole fact of her entire life that we should be focused on. Of course, it played a major role and it changed her characters and it had a lot of influence on her. But she was also her own person. She had her own personality. This event in her life, it didn't define her entirely and it didn't for sure define her work. A lot of feminist scholars suggest that Artemisia wanted to take a stand against the stereotype of a female submission. And as I said, Gentileschi is an absolute feminist icon. And, well, I like the idea that even in 17th century Italy, against all odds, there still were women who were ready to take a stand and, well, were quite successful in that too. Because, again, she was a prolific artist and her works were ordered and she had a lot of patronage. And, oh my god, she knew (laughs) fucking Galileo Galilei, how cool is that? In future episodes, I'm definitely gonna talk more about women artists in art history, it's a fascinating subject. Um, And I think it's very important to also talk about them because a lot of the times we go into the art galleries and the thing is that you can see a lot of actually female artists in galleries too. We just don't quite um, pay attention to them because their names are unknown to us. And I want these names to be known because it's important to understand that like, women still face a lot of problems nowadays. It's like no secret that patriarchy didn't cease to exist like 60 or 80 years ago. The discrimination is still very much happening. What I wanted to say is that it's important to understand that now we have our struggles and these struggles are kind of the same. Well, not kind of the same, but familiar with the struggles that women had like centuries and centuries ago and if women then with like practically no rights could still fight for themselves and could still achieve success we surely can too and it's just all about female empowerment empowerment and women supporting women which i think is a very important subject today which doesn't necessarily is connected with uh, art but I still would like, I uh, still wanted to say that. For now, um, I strongly encourage you to like to look up Artemisia's works because they're truly just absolute genius. You know, like we have Michelangelo and Raphael, and it's just nice to look at their artworks, and the same way it's nice to look at her works because they are highly masterful. Okay, that's it for now. Hopefully, you found this episode educational and at least a bit fun. Please, please keep enjoying the art world and until the next time bye